Aloha, Patreon listeners. Thank you so much for being a supporter of Pele Media, and thank you for joining us today for our special bonus Patreon edition. I am Kyle. I'm Brady. And today we're going to be going over the first draft and rewrite of Jurassic Park. The first draft by Michael Crichton and then rewrite, rewrite excuse me, by Malia Scotch-Marmo, a screenwriter in Hollywood. So, Brady, you came at me the other day and said, hey, this would be a pretty cool idea for the movie, uh, especially because the first draft by Michael Crichton is wildly different uh, from what we ended up with in the movie. That's um, right. When, when did you find this uh, screenplay? How did you come across I... this? Had seen the screenplay uh, a while back on the internet, but never really got a chance to read through it. I read a little bit, uh, skipping around bits and pieces, but never really got a chance to, to look all the way through it. But I've always heard that it's quite different from what we got. There's characters who exist from the book. There's characters who are, uh, you know, not in the book or not in the screenplay that were in the book. A lot of characters have kind of been like meshed together, different ideas, things like that. Um and so I was just really interested. I didn't know if I was going to be seeing something better or worse than what we got in the final product. And yeah. what we got was, it was interesting. Um, I'm going to give a little background on it. But before that, I've got to say that Steven Spielberg chose to uh, move away from what Crichton and Marmo had written and go with David Kep. And I think that was the best decision that could have been made. I think we got the better movie. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, it says, was, I mean, we'll say up front, like this is a first draft of a screenplay by the right. guy who wrote the book and first drafts of screenplays are usually the worst versions of something. It, 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 it will go through several drafts. And a lot of the times, uh, this, the story will change dramatically from what the first screenwriter writes and then the person who's brought in to rewrite it. And, you know, I, I don't, I guess it's a good idea to get somebody else to come in and rewrite something because, uh, material might be too precious to the person who writes the first draft. So that's not an uncommon thing for Hollywood to give some like $250,000 to write a draft of a screenplay. And then instead of paying that person to come back and do it again, they just hire somebody new to take that person's material and work with it again. So, and Michael Crichton was no, uh, you know, he was no newbie to, to screenwriting. He wrote the screenplays for Coma, Extreme Close Up, The First Great Train Robbery, Jura- the Jurassic Park we got here, uh, Looker, Runaway, Twister, and of course Westworld. So he uh, was a guy who who definitely had his uh, hands in screenwriting. So Right, he even started off Congo with the idea that it would be a movie right. before anything else. Um, so in, in, you know, within like Steven Spielberg's character, uh, he did bring Marmo back on to kind of, uh, help David Kep shape what he had written, uh, just as he did with, um, Phil Tippett. So that Phil Tippett wasn't just completely excised from the entire project. So, but I want to get a little bit, uh, back into it. This was what we're looking at is the rewrite of Michael Crichton's script. I do think that authors of books that are being adapted should probably stay away from writing the movie. Because they're just going to try and include everything that they can from their book, which isn't always going to work on the screen. And you'll find that this, uh, for anybody who gets a chance to read the script, you'll find that it's more or less the book lifted into screen form, uh, screenplay form. So, um, yeah, and while that may have, may have worked well in book form, it would have been way too much for the audience to chew in in a movie form. And I think that's something we're going to come back to a lot. There's a lot in this this draft a of the whole screenplay. Lot. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Malia Scotch-Marmo. She's an American screenwriter who wrote a screenplay uh, for a movie called Once Around in the early 90s, which was actually, let's see, it was um, kind of a hit immediately. And producers very quickly snatched it up and, uh, you know, gave it to Lassie Hallstrom, actually, director Lassie Hallstrom, as his debut American film. So the film starred Richard Dreyfuss, and who was a good friend of Steven Spielberg, and that's probably how Spielberg uh, heard of her. So Spielberg saw the film and said, you know, this is, I've got to get with this person. I've got to get her to write one of my movies. So he sought after her to write Hook. 
And he was so impressed with her work on that that he hired her to do a rewrite of Michael Crichton's original draft for Jurassic Park. So Steven Spielberg didn't really like Michael Crichton's first draft because it just it moved really quickly and just kind of it didn't give you that mystery that the final film had that he thought it needed. Mm-hmm. So he brought in uh, brought in Malia Scotch Marmo to kind of brush it up and polish it off, and she basically wrote a new one. Uh, that still contained a lot of his original work, but kind of gave it a new face. Uh, but she did make some considerable differences, including the removal of Ian Malcolm and giving right. a lot of his a lot of his characterization and dialogue to Grant, and having the sort of like pristine park kind of uh, be intertwined with the you'd have like a juxtaposition with the jungle. So you were constantly seeing those two overlapping when you were seeing them. So after reviewing her script, uh, Spielberg contacted her and said look it just doesn't quite work it's kind of a it's kind of a miss so we're going to skip on this and um start from scratch so david kep was brought in to rewrite the film which we eventually got uh like i said she did come back and help david kep kind of polish up his work a little bit so you know and i think as a screenwriter when you get that call from the from the producers and the director you kind of have to take it on the chin if they're just like this isn't really what we're looking for as far as the movie goes you're still going to get paid an exorbitant amount of money even though they're not going to use your script so you can cry all the way to the bank sometimes but uh (laughs) it is it is the kind of thing where you're not completely excluded from the creative process from that point on they may call you and say hey you know on this page what were you thinking you know or do you have any backstory on this so whenever you get a call from a guy from when you get a call from a steven Spielberg and they say we're not going to use the draft of your script you're pretty much okay with that you know he's like well that's yeah, what I signed exactly. up for so. yeah so some of the uh, changes that were made were kind of like smaller things you would see Biosyn was changed to Biogen Dodson is a character named Bill Barker and we also something that the script does that I, I really don't like is it cuts away from where we are stuck where we are stranded to things off of the island so right. it makes us feel a lot more safe we're going to be cutting back to the uh and b which is the ship that is bringing all the employees over to the mainland and there's something about cutting back and forth between that that just makes us feel a little bit less claustrophobic a little bit less cut off uh-huh. and you also see that in the fact that there are still workers and employees for jurassic park who are on the island i think one of the things that makes the film so scary is the fact that we are limited with our team. We there are only like six of us, and in Jaws, uh, you you know we never kind of come back from the boat back to Amity Island. Once we go out on the sea, we're stuck out there, and there's only so many of us. Mm-hmm. So, um, one of the things that was kind of strange was bringing Jurassic Park to a familiar part of the world, which is Wall Street, and that's something that we all know. One of the early scenes where we're introducing Gennaro. Uh, is in an office on Wall Street. And that's where he's sort of being presented with the idea of Jurassic Park needing the endorsement team. They're going right. to need, you know, Grant, Ellie, and all of them to go to the island and sort of give it their endorsement. So basically, it's, um, it's the scene where he is in the in the film Jurassic Park. It's like the first scene that's off the island when he's in the Dominican Republic and meeting the guys. Yeah, digging. exactly. It's basically all that info dump. And this is this is a big problem I had with it reading it. Is it's just info dump after info dump after info dump. And exactly. it's, it's moving extremely quickly. And there's no real sense of joy or wonder in the script. But I want to let you get back to what you're saying. But the scene you're talking about right. right now kind of stands in for the scene where Gennaro is in the Dominican Republic. Exactly. And that's one of the problems I have with this is that it's combining so much. And Mm -hmm. in the film and uh, in the novel, too, everything kind of gets its own little um, segment. And in this, there's just so much combination of things. Now, the movie, the uh, you know, final draft is not altogether 
not guilty of that. We're still getting Ed Regis combined with Gennaro. Right. We're still getting other characters that are combined with other characters. The reason for the inspection isn't the death of Gatekeeper. It's not the fact that the animals are just you know, causing such a such chaos. It's that there just needs to be an endorsement. And right, that's so yeah. boring. It's so boring that it's just like, oh, this is one of the steps we have to take. There needs to be like a, um, a desperation on Hammond's part. There needs right. to be a real reason for him to really be sweating. He really needs this. And so I, I couldn't really buy into the fact that it was just another part of the process. So like you were saying, um, there's a lot of info dump in this. I think a lot of the dialogue gets very... Novelly, I guess it's yes, just too yeah. much. Too Big much chunks like of dialogue. Book. Usually in a film, you don't see somebody sitting there saying more than like two or three sentences at a, at a, at as at a time, which is the whole you know uh, thing behind screenwriting. You show, you don't tell. And there is at right. the very beginning here a huge scene where when we're first introduced to Doctor Grant, which is the second scene in the movie, we go to that Montana dig that they're doing. It's just gigantic chunk of dialogue after gigantic chunk of dialogue. Now I'm sure Michael Crichton, if you sat down and had dinner with him and he was going to talk to you about something, uh, it'd be 75% over my head, but it'd be like giant chunks of paragraphs. I think that's how Michael Crichton being the genius that he was actually spoke. And you can't let that voice be the voice of a character in a screenplay in a book. That's fine. Grant could talk, you know, at length for paragraphs about scientific things that'll make you feel smart while you're reading it. But in a film, uh, after about two sentences, you kind of start to clock out, check out. That's why, uh, screen action means a lot more. What Grant's doing with his body, his body language is the stuff that really carries forward. And uh, Brady, there's one thing that Grant does here with his body language that really blew my mind at the very beginning. Do you know what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about? No, 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 what is it? Hey, Grant actually gets down on all fours and licks a velociraptor bone. Oh, uh, yeah. And because of that, what he's able hell? to tell like what's going on. It reminds me of the scenes like in shows like Miami Vice where they would find like a barrel of cocaine and they'd cut it and lick it and they'd be like, mm, pure coke, you know? Yeah, uh, like three days old. Exactly. <laughs> he can tell exactly what kind of dinosaur this is by, by licking it. And it, that's a problem with him is his character was like very quirky and a little bit too likable in this screenplay. I like it when Grant is much more of a curmudgeon that he was in the Jurassic Park that we finally got, you know? Right. There's no. Yeah. And that's another problem I have with this is that there's no real need for growth in any of the characters. All the characters are being, uh, you know, Ellie is one that is likable because she's so spunky and and cool uh, in the in the Mm -hmm. in this and in the in the final version that we got. But Grant, definitely. It's a lot easier to follow a character who's flawed. Uh, you know, like uh, Vickus in District 9 is just a chicken, uh, you know, yeah. a little a cower the whole time. And then part of that growth is that he becomes uh, courageous by the end and helps his friends out. You know, you want a character who has a lot of flaws and has to overcome that stuff. And this Grant just didn't have any of those. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which, you know, is another thing that the movie had that, that David Kep brought to the final draft. And another one of those things is giving all the characters character mm-hmm. you know the the romance between uh malcolm and ellie and the fact that malcolm was sort of a comic relief didn't come in until david kep was there um that is one of the biggest things that this draft is missing is the the presence of ian malcolm is not there since his character has been removed malcolm really makes the whole thing worth anything and or excuse me let, let me rephrase that uh it's not altogether lost the film is not altogether a big loss without him but he brings so much to it and jeff goldblum specifically brought so much to it uh you really do need malcolm and his plight and his revelations there to make this about something and this movie isn't really about anything this this draft uh it's just set action set pieces that are really cool after action set pieces that are really cool and it never really is about anything. Something else that's missing is the revelation that the dinosaurs are changing sex. The real crime here is that uh, 
Dr. Wu is injecting growth hormones. Yeah. And so the dinosaurs are dying off and that's cruel. Like that's the, that's the main crime. That's the bad thing that they're doing. So it wasn't, you know, I wasn't too sold on that. Um, another little thought that comes to mind is the fact that the movie is dated. Uh, whereas the final movie that we got, I don't think there's ever really anything in it that gives it a time. Except well, for some computer monitors yeah. and Jeff Goldblum's mullet. There's an like, interactive CD-ROM in the car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Muldoon does say that the movie, uh, that he says something about how back in 88 when we did this, and that sort of puts a time on the movie. Sure. I don't really mind that at all, but that's one of the things about Jurassic Park is that you could bring, you could watch that movie at just about any time and it would still kind of work. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm saying, outside of the interactive CD-ROM and Jeff Goldblum's mullet, uh, it still kind of works. So, I, I don't want to just be going over the problems I had with it. Um, some of the, like you were saying before we recorded, the uh, river raft scene yeah. is amazing. It's, it's awesome. It's, inc- it's an incredible sequence in the book. It would have been amazing to see it on film. But a point that David Kep has made is that it's kind of, it starts to get kind of redundant when you get the T-Rex with his big um scene you know where he enters and causes all the havoc with the land cruisers and then for there to be another huge set piece like that yeah. kind of gets in it just starts to feel a little redundant and i hate in movies a point that you have made uh when you brought up the movie speed now this is a while back a few months ago and you get the whole thing about the bus can't stop it can't slow down it's gonna have to jump over this bridge because the bridge isn't finished yeah yeah, exactly. And then that problem is resolved. And then all of a sudden, 20 minutes later, they're in the subway. And it's like, well, guess what? The tracks aren't finished. So the thing's got to keep going. Right. And I can remember seeing that as a, like a, however the hell old I was, 10. And just being like, wait a minute. Wait, well, I mean, you can't do this. that. You can't yeah. break that rule. Uh-huh. So, again. It's like a, a uh, Michael Myers, uh, Mike Myers comedy. Like Austin Powers 2 used half, <laughs> you know, Wayne's World 2 used half the jokes they used in the first movie. It's like, no, no, we get it. We saw that. You have to give me something new every time. Yeah. We have to continuously be doing something new. And yeah, like you're saying in this, this movie uh, or this screenplay, it seems like two different movies happening at the same time. You've got Grant and the kids and they are not in a survival movie like they are in the Jurassic Park we got. They're in like a chase movie uh, where the whole time they're being yeah. chased by the Tyrannosaurus Rex, you know, they're trying to get away from it constantly. And they've, you know, we do have the scene with the Hardrosaurus, I think it was, uh, or the, instead yeah. of the Gallimimus, um, stampede. And then they go from that to the river raft where they're trying to get away from the, from the T-Rex would have been a very cool scene to see. But like you're saying, we've had a lot of Tyrannosaurus Rex up into that point. And the reason it works so well is because, you know, like jaws are like the alien. You only see it sparingly. And when you do, it comes in, it makes an interest and it gets out, you know? And, uh, this, this version has way too much Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's strange how much the the second half of this screenplay is packed with dinosaurs because you don't see a dinosaur until they actually go out on that tour. In fact, when John Hammond reveals that there's even dinosaurs in it, it's just like an offhanded, uh, offhanded comment. Up until that point in the movie, when they get to the island and meet John Hammond, uh, right after, like they do in the, in the, excuse me, at that point in the screenplay, like they do in the film, they meet John Hammond, or they see the um, uh, Mr. DNA sequence, you know? Uh, and that's when they actually meet John Hammond. It's kind of like a, he's even more of a Willy Wonka character in this. He re- completely remains hidden. Uh, until like halfway through the screenplay. And then he's like, yeah. he shows him a big map and he's like, oh, by the way, I made some dinosaurs. And everybody's like, wait, what? You actually made dinosaurs? And it's it doesn't have the... <laughs> 
and that's something I kind of want to get to. It doesn't have any of the majesty of when we see the Brachiosaurus for the first time because probably when this screenplay was being written, they probably didn't have the final version of what the CG was going to look like. The CG, the fact that people were going to see this technology for the first time wasn't prevalent in Michael Crichton's mind while he was writing the screenplay. He was just writing something that was going to be stop action or it was going to be you know, what, 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 whatever it could be, it wasn't built around the idea that people were going to be seeing this stuff for the first time, you know? So we get things like Brachiosaurus being the first dinosaur they see, but also being like on the tour and then seeing the Dilophosaurus and having everything just kind of like happen. There's no real joy right. to it, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think one of the joys of the final film is that uh you don't get to see all this stuff and it does add to the mystery and it does add to the idea that this park is not going to work the way you want it to john just because you have these things out there doesn't mean that it's gonna it's gonna work um so let me see okay i did i'm trying to balance out the things i did like with what i didn't like uh the first appearance of the brachiosaurus i thought was pretty cool because they're in the middle of the woods like they're they're on the path or whatever driving and then suddenly the tree trunks start to move and they look up and then you know so many feet above them are the brachiosaurus heads chewing from the limbs mm-hmm. above and they kind of like crane down and look through the bubble and everything and i thought that was kind of cool i kind of prefer what we got in the movie but it was still you know it still worked yeah. um something so kind of jumping along here uh we get into further along into the tour and Nidri has already started his whole plot and he's, you know, meeting up with, he actually does almost pull off the plan and he meets up with the boat and actually gives them the, uh, the embryos, which are actually eggs that he's stolen in this. And then Lex on the tour is able to look down a hill and see it and put on some binoculars and say like, Hey, isn't that the, isn't that the exact, like she can completely identify who it is that it's Nidri. And then Grant's able to do it, and it's just like, what, 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 what? Yeah. You can see that. For, like, it's just a little can too Can we much talk about Nidri for a second in this screenplay? Absolutely. Way too much. Way too much Nidri. Uh, I felt that when yeah. he was used in the film Jurassic Park, it, was, it, was, it wasn't so much sparingly, but he, like, definitely his scenes were well-crafted. And this, he's just all over the damn place. Uh, he meets, uh, yeah. I think the character is supposed to be Dodson, but he has, like, a different name, right? Bill, ba- Bill Baker. Baker. Yeah. yeah. And he meets him, like, on the mainland, or is it, is it in Los Angeles? It's, uh, it's, I, I got the idea that it's somewhere in, in California, in well, the let's U.S. Just, let's I do San like Diego, the idea. Since that seems to be a, a part sure. that jumps out. <laughs> we'll just say it's in San Diego. Okay. Uh, because that's where, you know, they were building the other site. So, um, yeah, it's, it, whenever he's, it's, it's so comedic. Like, he's introduced as just this mouth that's eating peanuts. And then he just won't shut up and he's lining peanuts up. And, and Baker is a very, very, uh, very intimidating character. It's not at all like the Dodson we got who was kind of a chicken in the screenplay. And then Nidri is like on the way, w- on the helicopter with them to the island. Yeah, I, I didn't really care no, about that. I, I didn't either. And he's just, uh, you know, he's supposed to be a slob and he's gross and he's all over the place. But he's he is way too prevalent in the screenplay. And his method of getting the dinosaurs off the island is is one of those things that it seems like not a lot of thought went into it. He's basically... Yeah, he's like dragging around this giant incubator. Yeah, and he's actually... Yes, yeah, so, to, so like no And he's not taking vials of DNA. He's taking actual eggs off the island too, which comes back into play in kind of a cool way later uh, when they're on the boat, I guess, a little bit. But um, 
it's definitely, there's way too much Nidri in this, and I didn't like the way his character was. It was just a little bit too gross, and it wasn't like, the, the one of the funny parts about Nidri in the film Jurassic Park, the way Wayne Knight plays him, is he's super cocky. He might be a smart guy, but he doesn't have any of the bravery to back up what he's doing. So when we actually see him kind of like take off and do his little spy stuff, he's just like kind of a bumbling fool throughout the whole thing. He almost gives himself away immediately, you know? And there's no real character to this. Yeah. He's just kind of like gross and disgusting, and I don't think he really been you know would have been a whole lot of fun to watch. And- like like I was saying earlier about how it doesn't really there's some some sort of something is lost whenever this story starts to take place in familiar environments that we don't know. Now, Costa Rica, sitting out in the uh patio area when Nidri's eating when we first meet him. Yes, we all know where that is, but it's still cut off just enough that it's kind of exotic. It's not Wall right. Street, it's not San Diego, and it's a it's such a secret meeting. Dodson is so mysterious and he's, you know, under his hat and his sunglasses and nervous. And in this they're in the office of the headquarters of the place that you know, is sort of the hub of this industrial yeah, biogen, yeah. which just it's yeah, biogen. So it just, it takes out some of the, the mystery. Why, if this is so secret, why are we meeting in the place, yeah. you know, that's behind all you this. Know, so, you said earlier too, like you, you don't want to complain too much about this. And I want to make a point to say that we're not really complaining about stuff here. We're thanking uh, the screenwriters and to have the uh, knowledge that this was not the proper way to do Jurassic Park. They, we're kind of looking at this as like a jump absolutely. off point to the great decisions that they made to make the final screenplay that we actually got. So, you know, um, kind of like dialing that stuff back, like you said, and I'm sure a lot of this was done because it was a lot cheaper to shoot five blocks away from the set in Hawaii and just kind of like, you know, uh, hire some Latino actors to come in and make it look like Costa Rica than it was to fly, you know, actually shoot it inside of an office building in San Diego, wherever it was, you know, some of that stuff is just kind of like the screenwriter. (laughs) I think it was a a screenplay, a screenwriting class I had where the teacher came in one day with a highlighter and he just highlighted everything that was going to cost money in the screenplay. And then he would hand it back to you and he'd be like, this this is too expensive. You need to write this stuff so that it's uh, cheaper to shoot, (laughs) you know? And, uh, you know, it's, well, and ahead, that's, that's, that's something you have to keep in mind. And this stuff is just kind of like, I'm sure when you sit down with a lot of imagination on a first draft, you're like, okay, I'm going to write like there's no budget at all. And then you just like decide just, Hey, this first meeting is going to be between Dennis Nidri and Bill Baker. And it's going to be in a high rise building in downtown LA or whatever, you know? And then when uh, the yeah. producer comes and looks at him, be like, no, we could actually shoot for a lot cheaper on this. You know, we have a free day open. We could just shoot it at that in a bar that all the crew goes to after, after we're finished shooting. So you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because the production designer of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, their plan was to shoot in Egypt where the movie right. takes place. And he said, look, are we going to be seeing the pyramids or the Sphinx or, you know, the Nile or anything? And they said no. And he was like, all right, then we'll shoot it in Tunisia where it's cheaper. We're already familiar with because we shot some of Star yeah. Wars there. So we'll just do that. Yeah, it's, and it makes it, it's it, and, yeah. and dialing it in in a, in a in a filmmaker's way sometimes like that too really keeps things focused. And Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of those screenplays that is definitely focused on exactly what it's doing. It doesn't waste any time. You know, there's nothing wasted. It's a very uh, 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 production budget conscious script. The same thing for something like Inglorious Bastards, where in that movie they cut out a fair amount of the stuff that was just unnecessary for the movie, and they just stuck to the parts that were good for the characters. You know, move the story along and were interesting to actually see. So. And I feel like in this way, they did a lot of that with Jurassic Park, too, you know, uh, but there's too many characters in this version. Also, Dr. Wu sticks around the whole time. Regis is just not interesting of a character, you know, combine that with Dodson and then just throw Ian Malcolm in there because the eye goes to Goldblum. You know, that's a much more interesting character. So uh, I feel like they made a lot of smart decisions when they when they started working on the next draft of this. 
Uh, also, you know, and I want to say too that a lot of the larger themes that work in Jurassic Park, the life finds a way, Dr. Grant's uh, kind of character arc, none of that stuff is in this one as well. It's more of a... Um, it seems like it's got that Michael Crichton cleverness to it. That kind of like sometimes sterile a little bit, you know, uh, not, not necessarily on the nose, but the whole thing is about the science aspect of everything, the ethical problems of cloning dinosaurs and putting a, uh, you know, uh, as Malcolm says, you know, patenting, you know, genes and stuff like that. There's definitely a lot of grant talks a lot about the profiteering from genetic manipulation and things like that. Like that's the big ethical question in it, but there's none of that underlying theme of the fact that you cannot control nature quite as much you know i mean there is to a little bit like woo definitely gets in there and tries to mess with some stuff but it's not i don't feel that it was done in as uh even-handed of a method you know it's a little bit on the nose right absolutely um so let's get back to yeah. the tour uh i think okay again i've been talking about how i don't like seeing you know this movie kind of like jaws needs to rely on the fact that they are cut off. The one car, the one Land Cruiser, is cut off from the other one, and that means no walkie-talkies. In both the book and this draft of the script, Grant is able to communicate with the other car, and that gives it a sense of safety, uh, so to speak. And that's just, it's something that just kind of, I don't know, takes away from the right. threat, takes away from that, you know, you are alone, you are yeah. screwed. Which, uh, which is something that I thought the, was the, the Jurassic right. Park that we got has a lot more of uh, survival aspects to it. You know, like they are put in Correct. worse situations yeah. and then they make the situation even worse, you know. And one of those things like removing communication is something that makes that Tyrannosaurus Rex attack that I think you're about to talk about in a second much more interesting. You know, they can't communicate with the car in front of them. So they have to figure out how to save everybody on their own. Yeah, absolutely. Um so, okay, first and foremost, in the Tyrannosaurus Rex attack, the cliff, the mysterious mm -hmm. cliff, is still yeah. there. <laughs> it is still there, even in this draft. And something else that I thought was funny that we talked about with, I, I can't remember who our special guest was on the T-Rex attack scene, uh, but we, um, we decided that the bathroom was there. It was sort of like an employee bathroom for groundskeepers or whatever. And in this script, it's there's the bathroom, and then there's like picnic tables and... Uh, kind of a cabana and things like that. So, uh, so I don't have a point. Yeah, no, um, there, anyway. there's a lot of set dressing. They definitely talk about like there's a restroom. I mean, they use the restroom that's right there. Like, I think Lex jumps out of the car yeah, and they runs still do, into yeah. it and goes to the bathroom. Yeah. So, um, here in the T Rex attack, we've got the characters of Ed Regis and Gennaro, who, like I said, were kind of right. combined into one of the, the best decisions they the made. Film. Yeah. I think so. I think so because separately, these guys don't really bring anything to it, they don't right. really matter. And Gennaro's not a bad dude, and he, so he's just kind of mm -hmm. there. And Ed Regis makes a bad decision, but he's in the book. He's that was an interesting character that I really hope they kind of bring back into one of the. Well, future do you movies, feel that they kind of brought uh, that somehow. back into Jurassic World with the babysitter that was there with the little kids? Doesn't she kind of serve as uh, some of the things that Ed you know Regis what? does? There, yes, the babysitting yeah. thing. Um, now again, that girl comes and goes. I can't tell you her character's no. name. I can't. I mean, I know it, but figure to for my point, I can't. Um, but uh, yeah, so the guy he's he's not a, he's not someone that deserves the death that he gets. Whereas Gennaro in the movie downright deserves it, and you want him to get his own from the very beginning. Um, but in this, he's just a guy who is there, and then he's. Knocked up on morphine, you know, uh, excuse me, he's um, pumped full of morphine later because he's injured, and then, and that's sort of it. So, so much of these, so many of these characters in this draft, and a lot of the 
just everything about this draft kind of comes and goes and it feels a little stale. And mm-hmm. I think that those two characters are a prime example of that. So combining them for the final draft was a very, very, very good idea. Yeah. Like you said, uh, something else that I want to applaud the final draft for is the turning John Hammond into someone much more flawed and much more, so many more, and a levels. lot more relatable, I think, uh, much more one. compelling and more relatable, which he needs to be, uh, to be loved or hated. And in this draft and in the book, he is just one-sided, mean dude who's just all about capitalism right. and making a profit on this. And and uh, and so, again, that's you know the beauty of David Kep and his understanding of mm-hmm. character. <clears throat> and um, so yeah, yeah and he, there's another character that was definitely improved upon. Um, Robert Muldoon is an action star in this screenplay. And the dinosaurs yeah. are way too easy to kill by him because he carries around a damn rocket launcher the whole time, you know? And it's yeah. like, uh, there's the, the Raptors do get out more in, there's more Raptors first of all. And that kind of turns them from, you know, these stealthy, cool killers to uh, the, the xenomorphs out of aliens. And they're a little bit more easy to do away with. Like he shoots a couple with rocket launchers and they explode and he almost kills Wu one time doing that. And they, they make a note too that the Raptors are tunneling out of their pins and killing people on the island. And I think he has to kill one even before the thing even starts. And he's always keeping a running count of like how many Raptors there are. But one of the great things about Muldoon yeah. is we know that he's this like master hunter, right? There's like, this is the big game warden that tracks down animals that could kill him as well. But in Jurassic Park, the film, the first time he goes up against a dinosaur that we see, he's killed immediately by it. He's outsmarted by the dinosaur. We know that these things are that big of a threat. Whereas in this one, he's just picking off dinosaurs with this rocket launcher one by one. And also, I, I wouldn't believe that they would have a rocket launcher in Jurassic Park. You know, like the shotguns, the SPA shot. You know, that was good. Yeah, that was something in the book that also kind of felt a little out of place. Why a rocket yeah, launcher? It's you know, to kill the dinosaur. What are these like? You know, like Mexican drug dealers, lords. You know, like where do they get a rocket launcher? I mean, I guess it's Costa Rica. Maybe they're a little bit lax on those kind of things. I don't know, but but anyway, it um, yeah, Muldoon is way too. He's overpowered. Is is a way that to describe it. And a lot of video games that uh, people play, like World of Warcraft, uh, if there's a character that kills people too easy, the the fans will get on and tell the developers he's overpowered. He's OP. Go back and change him, and they'll tweak it and make him a little bit weaker well they tweaked Muldoon in this to make him more relatable and more flawed not flawed but I guess a little bit more um vulnerable and in the the Muldoon that we got in the movie is uh is definitely a better character than here because this Muldoon is overpowered he just walks around with a rocket launcher and blows things away so yeah absolutely um so okay now that we're through the uh Tyrannosaurus Rex attack we get to what would eventually be the scene where they are, Grant and the kids are encountering the Brachiosaurus up in the tree, but in this case, it's a family right. of Hadrosaurs, and then Lex, of course, sees a baby Triceratops and takes a ride on it. That uh, animatronic was actually created, and if it wasn't the full animatronic, then it was at least the mm-hmm. cast for one. So this, I think that they were pulling things from this draft for a yeah. while before they got to the yeah, David Kemp draft. Because that it, was something it definitely that was, stayed in for a while because I've seen a lot of uh, storyboards, too, for that. I think there was an intention for them to shoot yeah, that scene. Right. I'm kind of glad they didn't because just like having multiple T-Rex attacks uh, just sort of, it's, it's kind of starts to feel right. a little redundant. You know, we need to get from point A to point B. We don't need to stop and well, smell Well, you know, roses. what we got was the given... character journey from that stuff. And is this is just the kind of the spectacle journey of the whole thing. Like I said, it's more of like a chase movie with these big scenes that uh, would have been, you know, kind of neat to see. But I think we got the more fulfilling thing in the film that we got. Um, now, 
We're going to come up on something here that I think everybody loved in the book. I think would have been great to see in this movie. But like David Kep has said in an interview, he 86 because it just started to feel a little redundant. And that is the raft right. scene, the river scene. Um, in the book, they're actually chased down by the T-Rex in the river. And they go over a waterfall. And they've got to make all these turns and everything and fight the rapids. Very exciting stuff. Uh, we did kind of go back to this in Jurassic Park 3. And I thought they did a really good job with including both the aviary attack and the, the raft stuff in one. Um, but that's still a scene, a sequence that I think would be great in a Jurassic film that's never really been done. So who knows? Maybe they'll bring yeah, it back. Yeah, maybe like a river ones. wild but, with um, dinosaurs, you know? <laughs> That'd be awesome. Instead of Kevin Bacon. The subplot with the Triceratops and the stones is in this script. And I think that, that there was actually some stuff shot for the final film of Jurassic Park with that as well. And of course, you know, that's why the Triceratops are getting sick, right? They're, uh, you know, they're not eating right. the poison stuff, which we're introduced to in the movie, but then we're never really told like why they're getting sick. Well, it turns out in the book and in this version of the screenplay, they do identify that they've been using these stones that they eat to kind of help grind up the stuff they're eating on the island. And the stones ha are laced with these poisonous berries. So that's why the Triceratops keep getting sick. So that one is definitely... Uh, carried a little bit further in this version of the screenplay. But uh, can we talk just for a second about the character of Dr. Wu? Because he is all over the screenplay and he's killed by raptors yes. at the very end. Yes, he uh, is. In a, in a scene that I thought was kind of funny where he's running towards uh, a door that Muldoon has. Muldoon's trying to like egg him on to get in the door at the right time. But the velociraptor's gaining on him so much they have to just go ahead and close the door before he can get out. And they watch him get eaten by a velociraptor, which was kind of cool. But um, yeah, Wu, uh, he it doesn't leave early on. He's all over over this thing and um i i don't you know is he's a little bit he's 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 too comical i think like he knows who alan grant is when they first meet and he jumps up to meet him and shake his hand and he's a little bit too weird the yeah. Wu that we got in the yeah. movie was much more sterile and believable this is a guy who has purged any sort of ethical uh ethical uh, uh, questions when he, for, for what he's doing he just does what he's doing because it's a progression of science you know he doesn't ask himself like why is this done and it's a much more believable and very scary character as opposed to this one who was kind of a little bit of a, of a weirdo in the script I, I felt very weird around him whereas i think the woo that we got in the film is some a person you could you could believe actually it was alive really looking forward to his return yeah, in absolutely. jurassic world too in fact um yeah now <clears throat> before we get to the end here um, there are clearly other drafts out there, or there were sequences that were storyboarded with the thought that, hey, maybe this could go in if they weren't from a complete mm -hmm. other draft. Now, recently we talked on the show about some storyboards that you uncovered uh, that were that came from Phil Tippett's journal of like all things Jurassic Park, and uh, it involved Muldoon and Arnold being cornered in a cage and being taken down right. by the raptors that way. Uh, there was also kind of a different setup for Nidri's death in this first draft that we have here. And in the final film, it's a little bit more, uh, they're a little bit more common, but in some of those storyboards that were recently uncovered, he was actually pulled out of the car. And the last thing you see is his hands on the seat and everything. So um, I'm wondering how many other drafts are out there. Probably a couple. And now we, I think the finished date we got on this one, let me pull it up real quick is uh, March 14th, 1992. So as of the release date of this, uh, it's going to be March 11th, 311 day. Uh, so we're three years away from the anniversary of the script being finished, but this was finished about two years before the film Jurassic Park came out. So it's probably still about a year away from shooting at this point, you know? So there, it's very possible that there could have been like two or three more drafts of this written. Yeah, definitely. Or just right. tweaks here and there. But, um, Definitely something I'd love to find someday. Uh, now let's talk about the multiple endings sure. that were planned 
for Jurassic Park. Um, there was an idea at, at one point that I think might have actually worked in that Hammond the whole time was, don't kill my dinosaurs. Yes. Don't kill my dinosaurs, especially my raptors. I don't want to have them hurt. And then he has a sort of arc, a sort of come around where at the end they're Grant, Lex, excuse me, Grant, Ellie, and the kids are in the rotunda being cornered. All of a sudden, the Raptors start getting blown away by shotguns. They look up, and it's Hammond. And there's even storyboards yeah. for that. Uh, there was another, you know, okay, the way that this script ends, the first draft, is that um, the Raptors are climbing around on the skeletons, like we see in the film, and then Grant is able to sort of swing. There's one Raptor left. He sort of swings from one cable to the other, putting weight on that one, almost like Indiana Jones, and then ends up kicking one of the other skeletons, the T-Rex head, which falls and crushes the raptor in its jaws. And he even in this draft gets a one-liner. He says, and then okay. there were none, which is not very <laughs> no. Jurassic Park. But, uh, you know, and then I think by the time that the... Oh, and there was another idea where Grant was going to get on some, uh, some sort of machinery and start moving the skeletons around so that it was almost like the skeletons had come to life and were fighting. The T-Rex skeleton yeah. was sort of like a big yeah. marionette. <laughs> And fighting the raptors, and then it ends up crushing it. And you know, maybe in a little bit lighter film that might have worked. Uh, and of course, for the final thing, they said the T Rex can't just disappear. He's got to come back, and he's got to be right. the sort of hero for the movie. And it's Deus Ex um, Machina, but it all definitely these... it is spectacle, and it makes sense. And you know, we get to see the the, the Tyrannosaurus Rex for the last time. It's kind of a nice little send off, you know. Uh, so I think it really works. It's, the one that they went to that they went with. I think so. I think if another one was going to work and make sense, it would have been Hammond with the shotgun because that would have meant. So when Hammond comes in and starts shooting all the dinosaurs, what do you think his line is after he <laughs> shoots the last Velociraptor? Uh, goodbye, my son. I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> I'm seeing him go like he shoots the last one and they look over and they see him with a barrel smoke and he goes, consider yourself extinct. <laughs> or, or, oh. or even better, he shoots it and he goes, it's been revoked. <laughs> anyway what go else, ahead what else uh i don't know yeah <laughs> i mean one can hope that maybe one day george lucas will come in and say like you know what we need another uh another recut Special of this edition. film i'm gonna go yeah. do that yeah with jar jar binks says hammond so the the uh the ending that we get in this screenplay is one that was storyboarded and for a while i think they were going to be going with right yeah i believe so i believe so um and it's just it just kind of happens it just sort of it's there. There's no big reveal or um, re- redemption or anything like that. Now, again, the one that we- well, I think I'm talking about the the, the very end where they're getting on the oh, helicopter. Oh, uh, kind of, sort of, but not really. Um, yeah. In okay. fact, not really at all. Uh, they make their way out to the rescue copter. Hammond is trying to convince Grant to stay. He says, "I'm going to stay. You need to stay with me, and we need to." be there for Euro Jurassic and Jurassic Japan. And there's just an entire info dump about you did the wrong thing. And I did this for science. And it goes on and on and on. Finally, the, the uh, Hammond just sort of walks away. The helicopter is lifting off and then boom, the T-Rex burst out of the woods and attacks the uh, helicopter. Well, the helicopter is able to pull away and go off. And then, Hammond is uh, making his way through the jungle back to the visitor center. He slips and falls, rolls down the hill, 
And the final shot is a close-up of his hand and a mosquito lands on his hand. I guess there's some sort of poetic justice there about a... Yeah, I don't really he's... understand what they were getting at with that. You know, because the first thing we see in this movie, and a lot, of the, a lot of times when you're writing a screenplay, you want the end of the beginning exactly. to be very similar. Exactly. You know, so you kind of give a closing thing. Because the very beginning of this movie is not uh, them unloading a raptor at Jurassic Park. It is a, a block of amber being drilled into with the mosquito in there. Now, let me tell you, I loved the beginning. I thought it started off really cool. This just sort of glowing yellow that we're moving over. Some kind of shapes start to take place. And then you see that it's the amber. It's being drilled and put under a microscope. Uh, and I don't mean to cut you off. I'll let you, I, I'm going to let you finish. First, but um, um, the, Yeah, but first, the if anyone's ever seen the teaser, tra- the very first teaser trailer for Jurassic Park, it is awesome. It is pure teaser it's just everything a teaser should be and it is almost identical to what the beginning of this movie right. is going to be originally but um but anyway uh, keep going well, keep going. no that's that's kind of all a real i i prefer the one that we got i think that it definitely has much more of a mystery to it and in this one of course you know you, you would have seen in the teasers the amber and everything and probably be able to draw a conclusion of what's going on uh in jurassic park what we get is you know muldoon standing there with all the dudes with shotguns and tasers and they're watching this thing come through the forest and you're definitely much more of what's going on here is this a dinosaur and then it turns out it's a crate okay well what's inside of the crate there's more mystery going on there you know whereas this one is just kind of like you see the amber and the drill going through it that the one that we got grabs you by the throat uh we see the gatekeeper get killed right there at the beginning and we know what the stakes are for all of this so uh, i i prefer the the version that we got uh, in, in a lot of ways but that way in particular i think that jurassic park definitely opens with a bang and it stays there yeah absolutely um, I think we've kind of covered this beat by beat. Uh, I, yeah, it was a very interesting exercise to read this screenplay and see like where some of the first drafts and ideas were that Michael Crichton came up with and you know how they whittled it down and what we got in the final movie. And I think my biggest takeaway from it is that David Koepp came in and uh, definitely made this more of a character movie. Uh, and I think that's that's the redeeming factor of Jurassic Park. Yes, it's great. It's got such spectacle with the dinosaurs. It's a fun adventure. But ultimately, you know, kind of this exercise of going through the movie minute by minute, the thing that's really uh, kind of stuck with me is uh, how much of it is Grant's story and Grant's character arc. And, uh, you know, Hammond, his character arc as well. It's the characters and the way that they're written in that final screenplay uh, that kind of give this movie life and make us want to come back to it over and over again. Absolutely. Uh, now, if for anybody who yeah. wants to seek this out, it is on the internet. All you got to do is go type in, um, do a Google search for Jurassic Park original script or first draft. And um, if you're a fan of the movie, it's an interesting read. It's it's very interesting, like yeah. you were saying, to see where. And if, if you're from. if you're interested in kind of like the construction of screenplays, and you want to see like how one is written and how it goes from that first draft to the final draft, and where the germination of those ideas are along the way, uh, I would definitely say seek this out. It's not I, I you know it, it took me a few hours to read it, but it was not a bad time at all. It was very interesting, if anything. I mean, some of the stuff was kind of cheesy, but it wasn't anything worse than was being written in the late eighties, early nineties. You know, as far as screenwriting right. goes, um, it's not a Shane Black screenplay. It's a it's it's a first draft by Michael Crichton, you know, of his book that he wrote. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it's very interesting. Uh, it's not time wasted if you want to spend a couple hours reading this. And we found it on uh, imsdb.com. Uh, just search for Jurassic Park on there. The full URL is imsdb.com slash scripts slash Jurassic dash park dot HTML if you want to go link to it directly. All right, Brady, you ready to go ahead and get out of here? Let's go. All right, folks, thank you again for joining us. And for Brady and myself, mahalo. This has been a Pele Media Patreon episode. 
Thank you so much for being a Patreon supporter and keeping the show going. If you enjoy our bonus episodes, be sure to tell your friends to check us out at patreon.com slash Media. You can also find us online at facebook.com slash Media and Group at gmail.com. Our theme song is Behind Closed Doors by Otis McDonald. 